first thing in my entire life that made me truly, truly happy. Like just happy. And it gave me a standard of how I wanted to feel and who I wanted to be. And it helped me come into my own personality. I mean, if you, I was the snowboarding lawyer. Hi, I'm Josh Chambers. And I'm Leif Parton. And welcome to How Humans Change. The greatest podcast in the world. This week, we spoke with Constance Beverly. She's the CEO of the National Winter Sports Education Foundation, where she helps 25,000 youth learn to ski and snowboard every year. We had a great time talking to Constance. She is so inspiring and up to just something so interesting. Can't wait for you to hear how she got there. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please uh, please rate us on iTunes, give us some stars, and uh, share it with your grandma, because you love her. All right. Well, here's the episode with Constance. Enjoy. Can you give us like the chain of events, really high level of some of the changes that you've undergone and we can just chat a little bit about those? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of, you know, <laughs> change is like a domino effect. So I think there's probably a lot of little things that lead up to the career changes, but um, are actually just flags for other internal changes. Uh, so the kind of all wrap in. Um, so I grew up in the Midwest. I was raised by a single mom. My father passed away when I was young. Uh, I always thought I wanted to be a doctor, uh, but actually wrestling with his death was really tough for me. So I had health issues as a kid. My first memories are being in the hospital. So I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And after my dad died, the concept of having to tell families things were wrong really freaked me out. Uh, Um, how old was you, how old were you when your dad passed? So I was nine Okay. and, um, we were really close. And so it was, it was tough, but like I had told my dad before he died that I was going to be a doctor. So I think the first big thing in my life was when I was 18 and realized I did not want to be a doctor and (laughs) at all, uh, I was a candy striper and I followed around a cardiologist. My dad died of a heart attack and, uh, just realized I could not, I I didn't have the walls to be a doctor without having a nervous breakdown, basically. Yeah. So, That's a really I, big thing to realize when you're 18, BTW. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. I was just like, I can't do this. Like, this is like, I'm smart enough. I can do all the things. But the emotional aspect of this is something that would probably just ruin me. Um, so I went to a mentor at the time. And I still remember, he was just like, of course, you're not going to be a doctor. You should be a lawyer because you talk a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, well, you know, you're, you're doing really well in debate and you're so argumentative. Like you should really just, you should probably do something with that. And, uh, at the time, Uh, did you agree with that? I did. Yes. Because I am that person. And even though I'm not a lawyer anymore, those are hallmarks of my personality that if you ask my best friends in the world, they're like, yeah, Cosmos doesn't practice any law anymore. They'd still be like, no, she, she will forever be a lawyer. That's funny. So, That's funny. so yeah, those, those were the things. Um, and I, I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. I was going to save the world. I think I watched Aaron Brockovich too many times and decided mm-hmm. I could be that, but in less scantily clad clothes, maybe wear a suit and be the lawyer. Mm-hmm. Not the not the bombshell. So I I went to college in something called the Pre Law Scholars Program, and it's because I was a horrible test taker, and I was so nervous 
about not getting into law school that I got into this program that as long as you got good grades and if you if you took this law school class while you were an undergrad, you got automatic admission to St. Louis University's law school. So I was like, all right. Is that like a college type of set of classes or? Yeah. So what happens is, I don't know if St. Louis University does it anymore. It's actually a pretty awesome program that I would recommend to anyone because it's a good little boot camp. Um, what they do is they actually had a law school and a medical school, which is why I went there, just in case I changed my mind, because I always keep options open. <laughs> yeah, right. It's possible. Um, and they had this pre-law scholars program. So I, I did really well in school. Uh, like I said, I'm a nerd. So I went and you took regular college classes, but you had a core set of things they wanted you to take. So I took, you know, an administrative law class, a constitutional law class, an economics class, um, some public policy classes. And then you basically take what in law school is first year writing, legal writing, as an undergrad in the law school with a law professor, as if you're going to law school. And huh. if you pass that class and maintain your GPA, um, you automatically got admitted to St. Louis University's law school. It was a way for them to like, figure out if you had the chops in a more one-on-one -on -one way, which is how I tend to do well in life is actually trying things. So yeah, uh, that's, that's really it. cool. Yeah. So go to college, super obsessed on the lawyer track. When I, when I decide I'm going to do something, I go all in. So my whole identity was like, I was this pre-law scholar. I was the top of my class. I graduated valedictorian. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a lawyer. Now I had some doubts, but I had made my decision. So this whole lawyer thing, it was 100%. Yeah. Then I, then I took whoa, the whoa, whoa, Sorry. I, <laughs> we're, I have like a bajillion questions and yeah. um, I don't want to interrupt too much, but what was causing you to doubt it at that point? I started hanging out with lawyers for the first time. Oh, right. And you're like, wow, these people. They're not know. people. You know, you're supposed to find your tribe. This was not my tribe. This what was, was it about him? My tribe. Um, you know, I think that the lawyers that, and as I practice law, um, they're very regimented and, and you have to be, I mean, to be a really great lawyer, you have to be obsessed with your subject matter and really one with the repetition of things. Like the law is a lot of repetition yeah. and repeating something until you find the nuance. And, um, the, if you ask anyone that knows me, what does Constance hate most in the world? Number one repetition. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so it was just people that were really obsessed with obsessing over one esoteric thing that they would be the genius at. And I wanted to be a lawyer because I thought that meant, A, there's this myth that if you go to law school, you can do anything. I think that was like a marketing scheme that law schools totally invoked maybe in the 80s. Um, it was not true. Lots of things <laughs> happened in the 80s. I'm still not sure what happened in the 80s. Exactly. exactly. No one really remembers. I, I hear they were hazy. I was pretty young. <laughs> Um, but if you can't tell, I had a little too much personality for your average lawyer set. Sure. So oh, it's kind of a bummer though, when you think about <laughs> it for, for lawyers, it is, it is a little sad. Um, but I kind of persevered cause I, I realized I was like, I could be the, the super punk rock lawyer. It's gonna be awesome. I'm going to be an environmental lawyer, so I can be totally weird. Uh, 
And then things just didn't line up the way that I thought they would. So I got into law school and I got a full scholarship. Wow. And so I was, I was doubting law school, but then when you get a full scholarship, which was a number one aim in my life, by the way, I had huh. only gotten a partial, partial scholarship to undergrad. So the getting a full ride to law school was like, it was everything for like, I grew up yeah. around a lot of people with a lot of privilege who got a lot of things handed to them. That was not my life. So I had this goal in mind that someday, you know, I would get a full scholarship and it would be a big deal. So when I got that, I was like, okay, it's a sign. I'm supposed to go to law school. Right. Cause when you get something like that, it's, it's so hard not to look at it as a, like, this is fate. This is the universe. Do it. I'm going to be so good at this. Yeah. I got to law school first semester. I just hated it. I hated it. I was like, oh, I don't like the way people talk to each other. This like Socratic method is silly. You know, Isn't that kind of like everyone's first semester though, where you kind of like, yes. well, yeah. Yes. So, so I was like, well, it's fine because I'm going to lose my scholarship because there's no way I'm going to do well on these tests because I don't think this way. I am not good at this. Then I did really well on all the tests. Oh. <laughs> like so super. The universe once again is like, no, 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 no. Well, you I said, promise. But you, you said you're a bad this. test taker. Yeah, I'm a bad standardized test taker. So SATs, LSATs not my thing. Regular tests, psh, if there's a curve, it's mine. So I did really well. And I was like, well, I guess I'm not bad at this. So I'll stick it out. But I'm going to transfer. Maybe I just don't like the school. And, uh, and then I finished the year and I did even better second semester. And I went home and I was like, mom, I really don't want to be a lawyer. And she's like, if you swam halfway across the Atlantic, would you swim back or would you just keep going? <laughs> I was like, well, I mean, I might as well just keep going. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> can, can I, when you look back on that, were you like, that was some bad advice, mom? Or were you like that? Yeah, that, that makes sense. If you had talked to me about this about three years ago, I would have said yes. Now I would say no. You would say yes, it was bad advice or no? Yes. Three years ago, I would have been like, that was horrible advice. My mm. mom shouldn't have told me to drop out. I would have gotten my MBA be making so much more money now. Um, <laughs> but, but then you'd be a douchebag with an MBA. Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> um, but now that I've played the long game, um, she was right. And I'm glad that she said it, uh, which I'm going to have to tell her this weekend because she's like, you always blame me for all these things. She's also the person that made me take AP chemistry and volunteer at the hospital, which I thought also ruined my life. So she's <laughs> at the time. I mean, I actually wrote my college entrance essay about how those decisions were the worst decisions I ever made. And like, you know, they weren't, they were damn. Great you decisions. were impassioned about this. You hated it, huh? I was. So I hated it. So then everything for the environmental law side went wrong. Um, the professor that headed up the environmental law program at the law school died. So there were no environmental law classes for me to take. Oh my gosh, no way. <laughs> yeah, it's like hilarious now that I think about it, but I was devastated. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know... <laughs> It's one of those things that my mom also had given me good advice. I almost went to a solely environmental law school and my mom's like, eh, mm -hmm. pigeonhole yourself. Like, why don't you go to a school that's good and all of these other things? And she was right yet again. 
So I'm getting um, the sense like <laughs> from a young age that you were sort of wired to, you mentioned it earlier, but just latch on to something and then yes. knock it out of the park or really yes. focus on it. And um, that sounds like, so when you're like, I'm going to do environmental law, it's like, I'm going to go to an environmental law school. Yes. Yes. I like, I've always had a slightly obsessive personality. There's lots of funny stories about that. <laughs> um, Has it ever gotten you in trouble? Yes. Can you tell us yes. a story about a time it got you in trouble that's not too terrible? No, you know, it got me in trouble to the point that it actually, I mean, I'll be honest, it's what ended my legal career. Um, I, so I, to speed everything up, I ended up working on Wall Street and that was the furthest from anything I ever wanted to do. Sure. And um, I got staffed on Lehman Brothers, and I have a psychology and a women's studies degree with an art history minor, and I was working on Wall Street, working on, like, the financial crisis, and I don't know how any of that happened. Um, but I learned a ton, and I was in this whole crazy world. But I was so obsessed with not specializing. Huh. I was like, I, I don't want to be a bankruptcy lawyer. I want to be this other kind of lawyer. I know that this is a, a great lucrative track, but like, I, I just, I can't, I can't be pigeonholed like this. Like it's going to be a career killer. Wait, 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 wait. So hold on, hold up. So you went from, I, I graduate, I'm, I don't, my environmental law days are over, but yep. that's all I want to do. Yep. Then you found yourself uh, in New York as a Wall Street on Wall Street, what I was hearing you say earlier was, you know, you, you'll maybe obsess over something and you get really focused on something, but then you get into this other career and you're like, no, 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 don't pigeonhole me. Whereas yep. if you were, what, what was different about that? It was, I knew it wasn't me. I was never going to be the best. I didn't have the background. I, I knew what was going to happen. I knew they were going to work me to death and that I would never make partner. I didn't go to the right schools. I did not have a finance background. And I just saw the writing on the wall, but I didn't want to lose my job. At that time, they had fired over half my class. Oh. And um, I was one of the lucky ones that stayed, mainly because I was an obsessive workaholic that never left my office. And so they staffed me on these huge cases and they gave me kind of every job they possibly could. And I would take any job they would give me. I Things that junior lawyers should have been doing, all the horrible work, I'd take it, I'd do it. Cause I, you know, wanted to be good. I wanted to keep that job. I wanted to pay off my debt so I could get out of corporate law. I didn't want to be in corporate law. Um, I did it because I wanted to pay off some bills. I wanted to have a nest egg for the first time in my life. I wanted to have savings, something that we never had growing up. And so the I, justification for some of these things, because you you go from being like, I want to help people as a doctor to Nope, don't want to do that, but I can help people as a lawyer and I can help the environment. Yep. And then what were those things that you told yourself to allow for yourself? And this isn't speaking disparagingly towards you know. Wall Street lawyers, but you sounds like you personally had to justify that decision because it was so far outside of what was historically so, your value base. So far. So the way I justified it was how on earth as someone who literally had to scrub floors the first week of law school because my loans hadn't come in and I didn't have money for food, how could I say no to a six-figure salary at one of the premier firms in the world? Like, how could I do that when if I just work there for two years and I bank all the money, 
I could go make $30,000 in Vermont, like fighting for clean water and, and be fine. So I looked at it as like, I will buy my freedom. I will buy my freedom and I will get to do whatever I want to do. But right now I have $80,000 worth of debt. I have an opportunity that people would kill for. I could learn a lot. How am I going to beat these guys if I don't know how these firms work? Go in there, get everything you possibly can out of it, and then get out. And I told myself two years. And I was there for six. (laughs) What happened? happened? Great question, Leaf. (laughs) (laughs) The financial crisis happened. When when did that Uh, happen? What was the timeline on that? When did you start? I started in October 2007, and, <laughs> okay. and Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy, Gracious. I believe, in January 2008. Uh, and I was on Lehman Brothers for four straight years. Wow. And, uh, and I ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner at my desk for four straight years. Um, Jesus Christ. And, and then I was just, you know, and there were no bonuses. You know, like, at that time... The year before, the associates were getting like fifty thousand dollars bonuses. I got a two thousand dollars bonus. <laughs> right. Um, so all of my planning, based on you know, they froze salaries. Like salaries didn't increase while I was a lawyer. Oh right. There in like the worst time to be a lawyer. <laughs> so what kept you for six years? Was it inertia? That and no one else would take me because what no one tells lawyers is that once you go into a big law firm and you do that kind of work you're kind of useless to the rest of the world. What do you mean? Um, Wait, what? So, yeah, this is like a deep, dark secret. Nobody knows is that, you know, a lot of nonprofits and a lot of companies, like especially litigators, they don't want you because you get trained in big firm life. Like you don't get to go to court till you're like a partner. Whereas if you go work at legal aid, you're going to court on the first day and you're winging it and you're filing motions, you're doing all this stuff. Like big law firm lawyers are trained how to like bury people in discovery and file esoteric briefs and, you know, review 50, 60,000 pages of emails to try and find that smoking gun. So you don't develop the kind of skills. Plus, um, a lot of lawyers who do transition, they go and they make less money and they get really jaded about the fact that they're not making enough money and they don't stay. So I would interview and interview and interview and they'd be like, well, you know, and I would get to the final interview and they'd be like, well, it's between you and somebody who's been doing environmental law for six years and has been dedicated to the cause. We're going to go with that person. And, and that was like pretty devastating to me. And, uh, so I ended up switching firms, huge mistake, um, because the firm, I didn't realize how good I had it at the previous firm. And I went to a smaller firm in Los Angeles And at that time, I actually, my health had gotten really bad, mainly because, I don't know, I ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner at my desk for four years. Maybe. And (laughs) so maybe, just maybe. Maybe, maybe. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I got really sick. uh, But, you know, I had surgery and I took a conference call three hours outside of anesthesia. I started asking myself what the hell I was doing with my life. (laughs) Sure. What was it? Was it the... Because I, I, I feel like in these in these wake up moments that people have where they look around and there's destruction all around them, so to speak, is was there a moment, a defining moment where you're like, what the hell was it the anesthesia, post anesthesia phone call or was there something else? Actually, it was a moment um, where I was getting a review from two partners that um, had 
passed me over for some work, gave some work to a junior male associate that they uh, preferred. And I stood up for myself in, in the meeting and I got just destroyed. Like, yeah, I, I was just like, look, I look at, look at what's happening here. Like no women may partner. I'm the only female associate. You treat me like a secretary. Like, am I a lawyer or not? Like, I need to know. And they were like, we think you're out of line. And if you don't straighten up and fly right, you're gonna have to look for another job. And I literally said, I think I should go look for another job now. Whoa. And, I, and I got up and I was like, I called my mom and I was like, yeah, I think I might be fired. Like, <laughs> and she's like, what happened? Uh. And I was like, well, you know, they refused my medical leave. And then I took two days off and they used that as an excuse to give my work to a junior male associate. I kind of lost my head. Um, I don't think I can do this anymore. Uh, I think this is over. Like, this is over. Like, I can't. I can't do this anymore. So was it that moment when you when you lost your temper? Was that kind of like years in the making of just oh, yeah. frustration? That was just like 20 years of pent-up energy of like trying to yeah. be the perfect person and make it in a world and, you know, trying to start from the bottom and rise to the top and realizing that like no matter how hard I tried, it was not going to happen for me. Um, and that And that was really hard for me because I've always been the comeback kid. I'd always won. Like... Mm. It was always a battle, but that was part of my personality. Like I was, I was somebody that could overcome like all the odds. And this was the first time where I was like, you know what? I probably could, but I don't want to. <laughs> like, I, don't, I just don't. I'm done. Uh, so I how did you like, realize that? Sorry to keep was, probing, but no, I was so miserable. I mean, I had been so sick. Um, you know, I'd had two surgeries. I. I had alienated myself from all of my friends because I was so miserable at my job. I mean, like, if you ask anyone from that time, they'd be like, oh, God, we were worried about her, man. We were worried about her. Like, mm -hmm. she, I, I just wasn't myself at all. And um, a lot of things had happened, like a, a very close family or like friend of the family that was practically family member had died. Um, and he was someone that, like, never really seemed to, you know, he always loved what he did. And I just thought about his life and I looked at mine and I was just like, you know, if I stay here, I'm going to have a stroke at my desk and I don't want to go out that way. So a lot of death in your story, huh? Constance, yeah, has that ever struck you? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm like extremely cognizant of it. <laughs> how, how does that, uh, how, what do you make of that? I think, I mean, death is all around us. I think people don't like to talk about it or think about what they can learn from it. And I, um, confronted it at a very young age and, and realized that it's a part of life and that, you know, no matter what, the only thing, the great unifier is that we're all going to die. And I think that instead of being afraid of it or like mourning it too much, I try to look at like what, what it teaches me when it appears in my life. And so I've I always take very close note of it. Um, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, so-and-so was old. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, when I remember them or I celebrate their life, like, what part of their legacy is me learning from this time they had on Earth and and taking those lessons and applying them to my life. So I try not to look into it too much. I don't want to feel like some sort of, like, weird black widow personality, but yeah. <laughs> it's just... Yeah, I mean, it's just really striking. You don't, <laughs> yeah. you don't talk to someone every day who's uh, had been so 
personally affected by death outside of wartime or countries that are suffering significantly through violence, but just kind of the day to day. Do you have any kind of a, like a religious framework that you plug in in all of this? Um, not really. I, I mean, I, I guess I would identify as Christian, uh, just because that's the way I was brought up. Um, I'm fascinated by religion. It's one of the reasons why I went to St. Louis university. Cause I, you had to study theology. I think it's this amazing human unifier. Um, I have faith and I feel like things can't be totally random. Yeah. So I just look at everything like an opportunity to learn. I like, I do my best as a student of things. So anything that happens, I try to approach with a student mentality of accepting that there's things that I don't know and that there's a lot to learn. And, you know, I think that's probably the best way to describe things. (laughs) Yeah. Did you, were you wired that way or is that something your parents instilled in you? I think I was probably wired that way. I am my family, like I'm a little bit of both my parents and my sisters, but I, I am definitely the odd one. I mean, there's times that my mom's just like, I don't understand how your brain works, but I'm just gonna let you go with it. <laughs> but she's always been very supportive of it. And That's great. you know, she'll listen to all of my crazy ideas. And um, you know, when we were kids, especially after my dad died, she she took us to church because she's like, I don't want you to, you know as a byproduct, hate God because of this. Like maybe you can learn something. Oh, right. Um, but she's not a super religious person either. And then where we grew up, people were mostly Jewish. And my mom would, my friends would be like, do you want to sleep over and go to temple? And my mom would be like, go, it's so amazing. You'll learn all about their family and their culture. You should go. So I think I've always just been exposed to a hodgepodge of religion. I came home yeah. in high school, wanted to be a Buddhist because I had read a book about it. My mom's like, go ahead, be a Buddhist. Tell me about it. That's so, crazy. Uh, just, you know, always just very open to grab ideas from everywhere. Uh, sometimes I call her and I'm like, my friends are all woo-woo and they're like getting their charts done. My mom's like, have you had your chart done? What does it say? What do you think? Do you-, <laughs> you like have these like strange conversations where we just, religion is like a buffet and I'm just. Going. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. So circling back to your career, you, yep. you blow up at your law firm, so to speak. You're like, that's it. And that provides the window into self-reflection of good lord i I don't want to do this anymore i can't do this anymore yeah do you shift right then and there into nonprofits? that's the move for me or was there some middle ground what happened well there was some build-up the whole time um because as obsessed as i uh am in life i always have an escape plan i don't know where it was probably you know my mom is a jill of all trades as well And she kind of raised us in a way where it's like, you always have a backup, you know, like, uh, so in law school, um, part of my thinking, I didn't want to be a lawyer is I was actually supposed to be editor in chief of the law review. I was supposed to run. They thought I was going to win. And the night before I was like, I do not want to be editor in chief of the law review. Mm. That's a lot of work. I already have my offer at a law firm. I've done my time. I kind of want my life back. So instead I, they had started a new clinic on campus and it was the community and economic development clinic. And it was transactional law. And I, I knew I was going to be a litigator, but I was like, mm, I don't like to be pigeonholed. So I'm going to learn about transactional law and I want to work with nonprofits. So this is going to be great. 
So I started working with nonprofits and I, I found a nonprofit on MySpace because it's 2004, Whoa. Uh, 2005, <laughs> um, just dating myself a little, uh, called Stoked Mentoring. And it was a snowboarding nonprofit. Do you so feel like, like you're pronouncing that right? Sorry, just to interrupt. But don't <laughs> don't you feel like you should add like some kind of no. a? There, yeah, there you go. yeah exactly. Uh, definitely. Um, when Not I when on, I, bro. Stuff exactly. Like, it's like totally gnarly nonprofit, and like take the kids <laughs> out and super radical. Yes. Stay with that voice for the yes. whole time you're telling I about can't. this nonprofit. Yeah, Perfect. <laughs> now, now I understand. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, uh, so at the same time I signed up for this clinic and then I signed up to volunteer and teach kids to snowboard cause I love skiing and snowboarding. And then the first day of volunteering, I talked to the executive director and they're like, we need bylaws and incorporation documents. I was like, Oh my God, I'm in this clinic. And you know what would be great if stoked was my first client. So run up to the teacher, super overzealous, like, hi, I've been here a day, but I want to bring in a new client. Is that cool? And the teacher's just like, who are you? What is your issue? So, uh, I, so I started working with nonprofits, specifically with Stoked, and I actually kept doing that throughout my entire legal career. Huh. Um, and in the action sports world, there aren't too many lawyers that actually snowboard and skateboard and surf, which is what Stoked did. Um, and so through Stoked, I started getting referred to other people, athletes that wanted to start foundations, snowboarders, surfers, um, other ancillary organizations that having trouble with anything from trademark to whatever. And I just, you know, wanted to have meaningful pro bono work. So I just started building up kind of this resume as being like the action sports nonprofit lawyer that everybody knew. And so when I moved to LA, that really took off because when I started giving my work to other people, I started skipping out and doing volunteer work and being like, fine, I'm going to go work for Kelly Clark, who is a, you know, pro snowboarder, gold medalist, hopefully gold medalist this year, fingers crossed, Um, you know, helped her start her foundation and would like go up to Mammoth and help her with stuff and started consulting with boarding for breast cancer. So when I decided to leave the law, the big law land, the the giant behemoth law firms, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I started applying everywhere. I started applying to environmental organizations, to surf rider. I was like taking meetings with anyone that would talk to me. Um, but on the side was still doing all of this nonprofit work, uh, still volunteering for Stoked in LA cause they were in New York and LA. Um, and then someone I had met through Stoked was like, Hey, you know, I'm starting this company. Do you want to come out and just like, look at our pitch deck and like, maybe give me some insight. And I went out to Utah and I ripped his pitch deck apart and I rewrote all of his incorporation documents. And he's like, do you want to co-found this with me? And I had a job offer at a small law firm in San Diego. And I had I had left the interview being like, I'm going to have to take this job. And I'm really not happy about it. And then this guy, this friend of mine was like, you could just move into my house in Utah and we'll like totally start a company. And I had never done anything that insane in my wow. life. But I had a bunch of money in the bank. I had, I had built my freedom net. Uh, so I picked up, uh, I put my apartment on Airbnb. Um, man, I'm just dropping all the, the internets right now. You get, you can get <laughs> sponsors for this podcast. Um, and so I moved to Utah and, uh, know nothing about technology. I was the last person in my high school to get a computer. I wrote my lab reports on a typewriter growing up. So 
Did your co-founder know this at the time? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He just knew that if I put my mind to something, I would do it. Got so it. I did. And I went super nuts and I was like managing a development team in India huh. and uh, negotiating with our three first clients, which were all, you know, snow sports related. So backcountry.com, the U.S. ski and snowboard team and uh, Ski Utah. And we had created this interactive software where you could tag anything in a photo like you can tag friends on Facebook, but you could literally link it out. Like if you saw a picture of me and my super radical snowboard, you could be like, what snowboard is that? And you would click on it and it would take you to buy it. And then I would get credit for it. And we made it so like That's if you awesome. uploaded a picture, you could totally do all this stuff. Huh. Genius idea. Genius. Still believe in it. Yeah. Um, mostly work. open source, mostly open source software. And how long uh, did that take for the from inception to the end? Two and a half years, and I burnt through a lot of my savings, <laughs> mm. um, which still still hurts. But a lot of really interesting things happened. So we got into a startup incubator. I pitched to tech investors. I can hold a conversation with VCs in San Francisco. Things that I know things that I never would have known that have gotten me into circles that I could have never gotten in. Uh, I still say, you know, I'll be honest, I blew through about $100,000 in uh, two and a half years, but it's still cheaper than an MBA. I got to snowboard a bunch and the job I have <laughs> now is solely because of that time. Right. Uh, so tell us about that. How did that connection happen from the startup to this current gig? Yeah. So um, startup, we ran out of money. I was sick again. Uh, I needed to have major surgery. Thank God for Obamacare. Uh, um and I was blowing through cash right and left, just trying to get my health under control. I had a benign tumor that was just eating away at me. And Whoa. I, um, yeah, it was pretty gnarly. And so I basically looked at my co-founder and I was like, I have to take a job with insurance because I had had a failed surgery. They went in to remove the tumor and they realized it was too big to take out in the low invasive way. And that I needed to have like, basically my uterus removed. So they were like, yeah, you need to have like a pretty extreme hysterectomy and it's going to be really expensive. So I looked at my co-founder and I was like, I have to get a job and I have to get a job right now. <laughs> so yeah, for sure. Yeah. So at the time stoked mentoring back from law school had a posting up for development director. Um, and, uh, corporate partnerships manager. And so I called the executive director and I said, Hey, what can you tell me about this job? It's like, do you know someone that's interested? And I was like, yeah, me. And he's like, are you serious? Would you really finally come work for me? <laughs> that's awesome. I was like, yeah, it must have, have felt really good. He was like, do you have insurance? <laughs> I was like, I was like, is there insurance involved? He's like, well, it doesn't pay that well. I was like, is there insurance? <laughs> uh -huh. um, so I started working while I was healing from this first surgery. I was working for Stoked from Utah. Then I moved back to New York to work for Stoked and uh, worked for them for 18 months, um, you know, helped them raise over a million dollars through their most successful gala, did all this really great stuff. And I mean, I've never really been a development person. I've just helped a whole bunch of other nonprofits raise money. So I figured I could do this as a job. I know what yeah. I'm doing. Yeah. Um, you know, restructured a lot of stuff for them. And in that time, their biggest donor, um, I had actually met uh, someone who ran a foundation that he funded while I was in Utah, working with the ski team and with Backcountry and with Ski Utah. And they asked me to be on their board. 
And I was like, great, I'd love to be on a new, another nonprofit board. Um, the first board meeting was actually, it was a year and three days ago today, because tomorrow is the one year anniversary of my super big surgery. Mm. Um, and I had to submit my resume for that. And when I did, one of the board members called me and said, you know, we've been conducting uh, like kind of a quiet executive search because the executive director wants to retire and your resume is awesome. Would you consider taking the job? And I was like, wow. you're going to make me CEO of a foundation that has twice the budget and I get to rebuild it from scratch and like impact like the goal is to get 100,000 kids on snow by 2028. And, you know, stoked is amazing, but, you know, we're talking about 300 kids a year. Like, this is the power to, like, really do big things. Like, you're asking me if I want my dream job. The answer is yes. Who wow. do I need to talk to? So uh, I went through the interview process, healed from surgery, and then started on March 1st of 2018, 2017, um, and have been there about six months. And since then, I have gutted, restructured, audited all of our programs, pulled all of the connections I had from living in Utah, from working for snowboarders, uh, working for Stoked and all these other things to create this whole new scalable project um, that hopefully will get really big in the next year. But what is it? So, so it's called the National Winter Sports Education Foundation. We're currently privately funded by a few family foundations that works to improve the lives, health, and fitness of youth through winter sports. So primarily Nordic and Alpine skiing and snowboarding. So we fund programs like programs I've worked for in the past, like Stoked and some of these other people I've advised and helped grow and, and build. Um, but what doesn't exist is a foundation like this that really specializes in these different programs because there is an art to an effective snow sports program. Now there's probably isn't anyone else that I know of that has seen as many of these snow sports programs as me and also has a legal background, has also raised money from venture capitalists, have structured things. So we're kind of like a consultancy. So I when, see. when I get a grant and I deem it worthy of our investment, you basically get me breathing down your neck to make you a better organization. Um along so with all the resources. So you guys are not running directly the programs. You're working through partners to run these programs. And then you're making, um, you're helping these partners run yes. effective programs. But a lot of times we'll go to partners and we'll help them ideate programs. Got so it. for instance, um, our biggest program is something called Nordic Rocks. So it is a Nordic skiing, skiing physical education program that's in about 160 schools. So these adorable little plastic skis that have been modified so that you can put them on street shoes or snow boots. We give them to all these elementary school kids. And as long as there's two inches of snow, they can go out on the playground and learn the basics of Nordic skiing and they can get out and play and be physically active in the winter. That was an idea that had no funding and no support. And when they kind of came to this foundation before my time, um, I was like, well, we can give you the money for it, but we want it to kind of look like this and we're going to do this. And if you can do this, we can do this. And we kind of built it that way. We did the same with the YMCA. Um, I'm working on doing something with Killington Mountain, going into schools, um, a couple of elementary schools in Vermont, some schools in Utah. We're looking at a Nordic Alpine and snowboarding program for the entire Silver Silverton, Colorado school district. 
Because what happens is people say, I have this idea and I want to do this. And I was like, well, have you thought about this? We can do this. We can fund this. This is where you should be in three years. Here's what I can guarantee you. And here's what I could give you if you do this right and I go out and fundraise some more. So it. it's, it's a collaborative partnership. We see ourselves as a convener and a collaborator. There's a lot of existing programs that, I mean, we're actually at a, a turning point where everyone's like, well, just fund the existing programs. The problem is the existing programs have been around for over 10 years without moving the needle in participation or keeping youth on snow, keeping mm. youth involved in these sports because they're not structured in that way. So we're kind of at this really interesting turning point for the industry where do we tell these people to restructure or do we accept them as they are and say, sorry, but our money is going to something different? Yeah. Um, we're, we're figuring all of that out. Like what role do we play in this industry ecosystem that is rapidly changing, uh, becoming more and more elite and exclusive. And, um, right. There's a whole story as to why I care about this, but you know, perhaps it's for another time. (laughs) No. Well, why don't we do this? Um, I would love to hear the story of why you care about this. And then I've got some follow-up questions. So we'll kind of get out of the chronology mode and, talk more about change itself, but what's the story? So why I, I think that snowboarding and skiing are important. Um, so I grew up skiing. My mom and dad taught me to ski at four. I skied from age four to age eight. And then after my dad died, stopped skiing because he was my ski partner. Um, and there wasn't enough money after my dad died. Like my mom was a single mom. If she got hurt skiing, there was no one to go to work and pay the bills. We didn't have health insurance back in the day. Um, and it was just, it's expensive, but it was something that I loved and I was not an athletic kid, um, at all and really didn't have an athletic outlet for a really long time. So in high school, I decided that I really wanted to try snowboarding because my mom wouldn't let me skateboard and all the cool kids snowboarded and I was a nerd and I just wanted to do one thing that was cool. Just one thing that like made yeah. me not like the nerd, right? So You were a nerd. Wait, you were a nerd. Sorry. I know this is completely detracting from the main story, but you were a nerd because you loved books or you were a nerd because you wore glasses. Like what kind of a nerd no, are we talking I, about? I was a nerd because I worked really hard because that's like how I dealt with life. Right. So, I and I was like that before my dad died. My parents went to my kindergarten teacher thinking they were going to hear this great story about their super bright child. And my kindergarten teacher told my parents, asked them, do you put a lot of pressure on her? Cause she's the most stressed out kindergartner I have ever met in 20 years of teaching. So yeah. I just, I was one of those people that I had a really hard time getting out of my own head, um, generally, until I found snowboarding. I see. Aha. That fresh fresh powder. Yes. Mm -hmm. It was something, it was the one thing, and I did it a couple of times in high school, wasn't that great at it, went to college someplace where there was no snow, studied abroad, and literally got on the train and went to Switzerland and got on top of a mountain, was like, I don't know how to get down, but I'm going to figure it out. Cause I couldn't afford lessons. So I was just like, we're going to do this. I'm just going to follow. Um, but it was the first thing in my entire life that made me truly, truly happy, like just happy. And it gave me a standard of how I wanted to feel and who I wanted to be. And it helped me come into my own personality I mean, if you, I was the snowboarding lawyer, you know, it was the, it was this like differentiator. It gave Mm. me outlet. 
Um, I loved nature so much. I loved the mountains. Did you know that you loved nature and the mountains before you snowboarded? Yes, because that's why I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. Got it. Ah, yeah. Um, I've always been obsessed with water generally, like the water cycle and water testing is the first thing I, I did an independent science, science project on water testing. And that's actually like why I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. Um, and just obsessed, obsessed with it. And so then when I started snowboarding and I got to spend more time in the mountains and, and then I met different types of people, you know, like people that I normally wouldn't have hung out with or people yeah. I didn't have anything in common with. I got to talk about snowboarding. Also, uh, especially like, you know, late nineties, like there weren't a lot of women that snowboarded. Um, so it was another thing I kind of look at it as just another place that people didn't expect me to be where I got to hold my own and prove that I could. Um, I say this to kids all the time, the kids I work with, I was like, you know, if you're perceiving yourself as different and you're recognizing your otherness, whatever it is, if it's because you're a woman, you're a kid of color, uh, you're a minority, you're, you know, you're poor, whatever, you're gonna have to face that for the rest of your life. Why not just face it here? Because once you figure out you can do it here, you can do it anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. and it's, it's just a giant metaphor for life. And when, when I started working with programs like stoked that I saw the looks on kids faces when they get just completely taken out of their element. You know, everyone's just like, well, give them a soccer ball or a basketball. And I was like, that's just telling them, like, stay in your neighborhood, do what people expect you to do. Kids that look like you do these things. It's cheap. That's what you should do. When you take a kid out of that paradigm and you say, I am going to take you to do the most expensive thing that only the really super privileged kids get to do. And I'm going to invest in you and I'm going to let you do it and you're going to get good at it and we're going to support you. It's a completely different conversation. It's just, wow. it's, showing, it's showing kids there's a whole different possibility that there's, there's different worlds outside of what they know. And, and even with kids, there are so many kids that live in mountain towns and look at the mountains and can't afford to go. Yeah. I it is a very expensive privileged sport. That's for sure. And that's, and that's an industry problem. And that's something that like I'm working to shift that if you yeah. increase participation, you could reduce prices and still have great profits. Like there's mm -hmm. a business model that makes this work for people. It's, it's just, what is it? Why is it that they don't want to do that? And it's one of those things too. It's like, you know, I work a lot with urban populations, but I've been focusing on mountain towns too, because most of the kids that live in mountain towns that don't have wealthy parents, they live in the shadows of these mountains and, and some of their parents work on the mountain and they don't right. get to and it's, I just, I can't, I feel like anytime you're faced with seeing inequity and like, while that's a small example, that's, you know, but it happens in cities. There's so many people that have to live in the shadow of greatness and don't get a crack at it. That even in this small sphere, showing that like with a little help and with a little fairness and with a little effort and a little investment, you can help people crack that inequity I'd like that to translate to other things. Yeah. A small controlled environment where we can do it. And it seems some people are like, well, I don't, I don't really see how that changes the world. And I was like, you see stories change the world and experiences change the world. And if I can do this for kids in this space, what could we possibly yep. apply what we've learned here to? This is an amazing lab that has all the elements of every other strange, like, 
paradigm of inequality. Like, yeah. what could we figure out here that might apply to other things? So that is why I've dedicated my life to getting people who have been told they don't belong in a certain environment, yeah. in an environment and thriving with a little support and a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I was going to ask, as a thinking about your whole story and hearing all of these different changes, so much of it strikes me as serendipitous. And I'm wondering what you would say about the tension between letting serendipity run its course and letting things come to you and walking through open doors when they open versus planning and pursuing things with intention. So I would say that this actually was not serendipitous. It was planned. Some of it shifted, but I knew what I was doing with, once I found snowboarding and once I found stoked and kind of found this like platform, mm -hmm. I really pay attention to what's going on around me and the environment. And I ask a lot of questions and I talk a lot, as you've noticed, I, I figured it out, you know, like started talking to people. I didn't just like sit with the executive director. I'm like, how did you do this? Who did you need to know? What's this industry like? Why? And from there, I always kept tabs and I was always building something in the background. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew I liked it. I knew I wanted to be a part of it. I didn't know how, but I wasn't going to let it go. And so I held on to it and I expanded it. Um, and when I, this, the serendipity of it, I guess, is just kind of like, when a door does open, I mean, sometimes you got to kick the door down, which I've definitely done. Yeah. Um, but other things, it's just like, you don't necessarily know what you're building towards, but I think everyone knows once you've succeeded in one way or another, you kind of know what you need to look for on the path, right? Like if you're going in a certain direction, you're like, well, I know I need a network of people and I should probably know what I'm talking about. I mean, I did this with finance. I knew nothing about finance read a couple of books, figured out the industry, read a couple of articles, understood the little niches where I could be a little bit of an expert, talked to the right people, smiled and nodded, worked really hard, and then held my own in a place that I like had absolutely no business in. Now, once I did that in such a big way, like literally girl from Ohio who never was going to live in New York City working on Wall Street on Lehman Brothers, I was like, if I can pull this off, what else can I do? So then right. I did the same thing in tech. I was like, well, okay. Why this not? Is place, this is the stuff. I need to learn this. I need to learn that. You admit what you don't know. You have your couple of aces in the hole. You play the game. You fake it till you make it. And and there you go. Yeah. So yeah. in the snow sports industry, that's something I'd just been building much longer. And it was much more of a long game because it was always a passion project, a side project, because it was fun. Everything else I was, I didn't, it took me a long time to realize that I could make that a career because I didn't think it was for me. But then as doors opened, once yeah. the doors open, you start looking around, you're like, where are the other doors? Like, or is there a window? Could I, <laughs> like, there, I think that's a window. And you just keep building until something materializes. But, yeah. you know, if this job wasn't offered to me, I'd still be at Stoked. Um, or I'd been offered a couple of other executive director jobs. Uh but you know, that was, that was 10 years in the making. 
Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting because I think a lot of the part of the reason I asked that question is twofold. A, a lot of times from the outside in, when we see people make big career changes or a big career move, it's I don't know why, but we see, seem to assume that it just sort of happened. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Melissa Villasenor is uh, was on the Pete Holmes podcast a while back, and and she was explaining how sometimes people will say, "How'd you get into SNL?" And her response was, "I, I don't have time to explain passion to you, because it <laughs> looks like from the outside in, yeah, that you just SNL just got dropped in your lap." So there's that aspect that you're saying of there was a lot of intentionality. And it wasn't just kind of accidental. But then the other side of it that I think about a lot personally, because I've done quite a few different things in my career as well, and have a very open personality like you, the desire, oh, sure, that looks interesting. I'll try that and I'll go get into it. Uh, yeah, that kind of why not aspect. I, I wonder what you found the right, like is the right balance between obsessing over pursuing something versus just sort of letting things go and and move at their own pace. That's part of where that question was coming from, if that makes sense. I struggle struggle with that every day. I think that's actually the biggest challenge. And I like spent a lot of time around entrepreneurs and in the past couple of years. And I think that's like their biggest struggle as well. Like at what point do you kind of let go of a few things and kind of see how things work out? And it's and it's interesting too. I mean I I was, I had a meeting with a bunch of people today and I struggled a little bit because it's always funny. I go to these meetings and everyone's just like, oh, you're so lucky. And I was like, lucky, like, right. Mm. Um, Meanwhile, a lot of them were able to build businesses because, you know, they didn't have student loan debt and they didn't actually have to work their first job till they graduated from college. And we talk about ideas and we do all these things. I'm like, man, if I had had the free time earlier, what would I have done different? Because that was, I think, the thing that was the least plentiful resource was that I didn't start getting creative about thinking about my career until I took a little break. Because I, you know, I worked 40 hours a week in undergrad and took 18 credit hours and got straight A's. I didn't sleep. So there weren't, I didn't, I wasn't one of those college kids that like sat there and like, yeah about the what ifs, right? I missed out on that. And that's, that's, I think, a sad tragedy for a lot of people that aren't upper middle class or, or you know, wealthy, because you get so busy doing and surviving that you don't have the luxury to say what if. And I didn't get to do that until I built that safety net, right? That, that thing that allowed me to spend two and a half years on this like weird startup, um, and to have time to do some consulting and to sort of take breaks here and there and and start even seeing what other people did with their lives. I mean, my mom has this running joke where she'll ask me for a long time. She'd ask me what my friends do. And if they weren't like a doctor, lawyer, engineer, or teacher, I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> and yeah. the reality is, is I mean it. I meant it. I really like someone would be like, I'm a marketing manager. I was like, I don't know what that person does. Like, to be fair, sometimes I still don't know what that person to does. To be fair... That person still doesn't know what they do. (laughs) So, you know, I think a lot of that, that's sort of the struggle that I started getting creative much later in life. And, um, and I see, especially like younger, you know, all the millennials that like they're encouraged to do that. Um, and they're encouraged to change. Like 
I think I'm like at the top of the millennial side and change was not something that anyone talked about. Like people's grandparents worked places 50 years. And, you know, if you went into law, you made partner to law firm. And I think with the financial crisis and with things happening, people had to start getting creative. They had to like make big shifts in their careers and they had to change directions. Um, and, you know, lawyers like weren't creative. Um, so if that, I mean, that's, I guess, serendipitous. If yeah. that had, maybe I'd still be a lawyer, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's all it's all kinds of strange until you get the chance to start thinking about well, what yeah. else is well. There? Let me ask you the last last question then. What advice would you have, and what thoughts do you have for other people, regardless of age, who are maybe just starting to ask that what if, or uh, who haven't yet had the time or the energy to ask that what if? I think, and I've people have been people ask me this a lot. Um, and my new favorite piece of advice to give people is something that someone told me way too late in life, meaning I'm still trying to figure it out. I think the first thing you need to do is to take a minute and ask yourself what you want your life to look like. Do you want to travel? Do you want to be married? Do you want to have kids? Do you want to own a house? Do you want to own five houses? Do you want to be able to live abroad? Do you want to have a pet? Like all of these silly, silly things that all actually have huge bearing on your life, right? And no one really tells you to do that. They tell you to get the job and figure it out later. But so much, especially in this day and age where there's remote working opportunities and then there's all these visa issues. And, you know, also, you know, as I'm getting older, it's like, well, the kid thing I should have thought of sooner and all these other things. I think people try to fit their life into their jobs and maybe they should try to fit their jobs into their life. And my life was all about the job for a really long time, about having the job, being successful, being perceived as successful, and I hated my life. I love my job, but my my job is more about my life. I made that shift, and uh, I don't make as much money as I used to. I will never make the money I could have made that way. Um, you know, Right now, I can't live abroad because I run a U.S.-based thing. Um, I have a little dog. If I had a family, it would be really tough. I mean, I'd probably be divorced if I did have a husband right now because I'm never home and I work all the time. Um, but I'm okay with all of those things because I made decisions about what I wanted my life to look like. But I think that's the one thing people don't do. They don't think about that. And it's not like, what do you want your life to look like when you're retired? Because, you know, that's right. far away. Like, if you're miserable throughout the entire race. It doesn't really matter what shape you're in at the fi finish line. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing. Like if you think you need a change, really like empirically figure out like, what do, why, you know, is it because like I did this with my friend, I was like, I'm struggling because I kind of, with what I do and with what I make, I cannot own an apartment in New York city. You know, I don't have funds from family. I'm 100% on my own. And I keep asking myself, do I really want to own a house? Like everyone that's 35 owns a house. Most of them are married and have kids and, you know, a bigger 401k than me. But, but I start asking myself, I'm like, well, what does that mean? Like, is that something I want? And I'm, you know, it shifts every time you make a shift. Like, what do, what do I want the next phase of my life to look like? And then you go from there. Because if you decide that you want to be a family person and you want to have two kids and you want to be involved in all their school plays, like being a partner at a law firm might not be a really yeah. good idea for you. 
Um, well, I think that sort of hits on the one of that that question of serendipity versus planning too, and the what if because I don't think we take stock uh, when change is happening or frequently enough uh, to assess that maybe it's time to shift some of those values or maybe it's time for those values to play themselves out differently. And I think what's funny culturally is you get you get static if you do change them. Yeah. Um, like thinking about the, the kid who was super cool and then fast forward 15 years and he's driving a minivan. Everyone's like, what in the world are you, how are you driving a minivan? It's like, yeah. well, life changed and that's, he decided to change with life and endorse these other things and shift. And I don't know how often we do that where we're reassessing and, and not just, Oh, I need a different job, but reassessing. I think my values have changed here a little bit. I think the key, and I, I actually just said this to someone today is, um, we, we tie our careers to our identities. And like, I had a huge, I was like, I'm Constance the lawyer. I'm Constance the lawyer that works all the time. All my friends are so impressed with the fact that I'm a lawyer. I'm going to stop being a lawyer. I'm not going to be anything. I'm going to be a failure. You know, I was top of my class in law school as one of the few people that got these jobs. Like, oh, and fast forward five years from now. And all my friends that are partners at a law firm was like, you know, your cause is the daredevil. Like you're still a lawyer and you're doing all this cool stuff and you're traveling everywhere. And like mm. you run a company and like you quit the law and became CEO in a new industry in three years. Like you're a badass. But like, mm -hmm. it's just owning your values. It's because I decided that that's what I cared about. I made it known that that's what I cared about. I made it known that this is who I am now, that I love it, that, you know, come what may right now, I'm living the best life I can and enjoying every minute of it. And if you do that in whatever you do, you're going to get support. It's, it's what you're putting out in the world. If you're like, Oh, I had to get a minivan. Like it's very different than, Oh man, I got a minivan. You know, what's so great. This thing's so good in the snow. Like we can put all the snowboards in there and the kids uh. going to get a sitter. Like it's all in how you are telling your own story. And I think people forget that this is your narrative. It's not society's narrative. Like when you're, when you're living someone else's narrative, you're going to be miserable no matter what you're doing. But if you own it, like if you want to be a partner to law firm and be cutthroat and miss every baseball game, but like send your kid to the best school ever, but you own it and you're happy with it. Everyone's going to be like, that's you. That's your choice. You made that life choice. I totally get you. But if you ho-hum about it, I think that's the biggest problem. That's where you're going to get conflict. That makes a lot of sense. That was, I like that. Thank you. I, I agree. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for your time, Stance. Thank you. This was fun. Good. 